You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. That one you're dedicated to all the bicycle riders in. Bicycle rider, bicycle rider. And good morning and welcome to this week's edition of the Yarra Bicycle Users Group radio program on Community Radio 3CR 8.55am and digital. And thank you to Democracy Now! for the last hour of current affairs. This is Yarra Bicycle Users Group radio. We are a show about bicycles and sustainable transport issues coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. And uh, yes, on 3CR Community Radio, which is celebrating its 40th year. On today's show, I'm going to be talking to uh, Borundara Councillor uh, Philip Manis about the long-awaited Darabin Bridge. Today, apparently, there was an announcement um, earlier this morning about um, it's actually going to be completed, <laughs> believe it or not. It's taken, well, according to the newspaper article this morning, it's taken 20 years. And um, for many of us, it's probably taken a lot longer than that, probably close to the 25, 30 from, from many accounts. And also going to be speaking to my other guest today will be John Inghart. Probably known to many of you um, as a citizen journalist. He does stuff for No Fibs and oh, lots of stuff around the inner suburbs and been a kind of a historian of many, many um, kind of radical history of Melbourne. But we're going to be talking today about COP21 and some very large protests happening in France at the moment that uh, kind of link in with COP21 to do with an airport, um, proposed airport uh, construction, which runs contrary to what uh, protesters want there to do with climate emergency action and possibly also to, uh, touching upon riding around uh, Brittany and I believe Dartmoor. So yeah, it's kind of a bit of a different experience from riding around here in Melbourne at the moment, which is been quite nice the last couple of days, hasn't it? We had a couple of pretty big weekend. I hope you didn't get too sunburnt yesterday at uh, the apparently the last worldwide naked bike ride for Melbourne. Had a lovely little jaunt down there at um, St Kilda and around the southern suburbs. So good on you if you made it out for that. Looks like everyone had an absolute um, right. I, <laughs> I was about to say something else, but it's a bit too early on Monday morning for that. But um, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, quite a bit going on, but I'm going to take a quick break and I think I should be back in a moment with Philip Manners from Burundara Council. Oh, no. Freeze, fellas, you're under arrest. What do I do? Um, call a lawyer? Hello, Fitzroy Legal Service. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you are arrested, you should make a no-comment interview. A no-comment interview? Yeah. Well, how do I do that? You say... No, no comment! To everything? Yes, except your name and address. Every other question you should answer with no comment. So if he asks me what colour my shoes are, I say no comment? Yes, you say... No, no comment! To everything? Yes, say... No, no comment. comment! If you are arrested, exercise your right to contact a lawyer and say no comment. 
Fitzroy Legal Service proudly supporting 3CR. And you're back listening to Yarrabosque News Group Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855am in digital. And while I'm waiting for a call to come through from Philip, I'm talk a little bit about what's happening up in New South Wales with their rather interesting bike laws, which could be seen as, uh, well, anti-cycling. And the, you know, the kind of thing I've been hearing is like, oh, it's bringing us up to par with you know, what uh, motorists have to contend with. Well, basically, it's, um, let's just say it for, say it for what it is. It's, it's, it's kind of trying to discriminate against uh, legal road users as an outgroup, and I think that's a pretty poor indictment upon what's actually happening in New South Wales. I mean, yesterday here in Melbourne, we had the Worldwide Naked Bike Ride where a whole bunch of people, you know, in various stages of dress or undress, and that's entirely up to them how much they wanted to wear or not wear, peacefully rode around uh, the suburbs of Melbourne and uh, sounds like without any legal, um, well, police didn't involve themselves in any way. But in Sydney, in the last couple of days, you would have may have heard about there was going to be some type of skinny dip or something happening around the inner suburbs, one of the inner suburbs uh, swimming things, and the police closed that down. There's a lot of stuff going on up here in Sydney in terms of over-policing and the like, and this thing that's happening with cycling, apparently they've uh, brought about what, 450 infringement notices and a blitz across Sydney for riding on the footpath, not having bells attached to bikes and other offences. And that's pretty um, pretty amazing considering you know, this, is a Sydney, this is a city over 4 million people and there's, you know, even though it's a fairly antagonistic and aggressive place I find to get around there is still quite a few people who ride around on bikes and want to ride for transport so what do you think what do you think do you think this should be um people should have bikes or should should have bells and, and the rest of it on their bike I mean if you're a roadie that's a bit problematic some people don't do that um, and get more into this article from The Guardian. Officers posted to major intersections around the Sydney CBD on Thursday of last week issued 393 fines, 210 for cyclists not wearing helmets, 80 for riding on the footpath and 103 for disobeying traffic control lights, including not dismounting at pedestrian crossings. Uh, another 64 cautions were issued, some of them to cyclists for not attaching bells to their bikes, and more than 200 motorists were also fined during the blitz. So they're trying to do that for a little bit of, uh, you know, par. But anyway, uh, cycling fines are standardised $71, but from, from this Monday, from today, but uh, will quadruple to 319 for not wearing a helmet and 420 for not stopping at a pedestrian crossing. And that may be under a, well, that's up to the officer who's observing the apparent incident. So, um, and this is this is the big thing. I've got to read this next bit. And this is a part where I interviewed David Brella from Bike Sydney about a month or so ago. Cyclists will also be required to carry ID or pay a $106 fine from March 2017, that's next year. But the government has said a mobile photograph of a license or passport would suffice. So you still got to carry around your um, your phone with you or some type of ID. That's, that's really getting some pretty bizarro territory. We apparently live in a civil society where we have, we're allowed to get around, you know, free assembly and all the rest of it. But yeah, anyway... I'm going to touch more upon that, but um, I am going to go to a quick break and I believe I should have 
Philip from uh, Burundara Council up next. Welcome. 3CR Breakfast Radio meets the people. So come along to 3CR's Sustainable Breakfast Series. Broadcast live from Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. Join us for breakfast tasties at Friends of the Earth 312 Smith Street, Collingwood, or tune in to 3CR to hear what people are doing in the area of sustainability. From Tuesday, March the 15th to Friday, March the 18th. Starts at 7am, goes through to 8.30am. Come down, watch a live show. Every show will have a musician and it's a fantastic initiative by 3CR and Friends of the Earth. Supported by Yarra Council. Um, on the line, I've got Councillor Philip Manners from Burradown Council with some great news about Darabin Bridge. Philip. Yes, well, it's fantastic. We were down here this morning uh, and the roads minister announced that the bridge will be going ahead and is expected to be finished by late 2017. So that's great news for cyclists all around Melbourne because we'll finally have one continuous off-road pass which will go through across a lot of Melbourne and also be providing great links for Alphington Grammar, people from Burundara going north and people coming south. So fantastic to to finally, after 20 years, have this project underway. It's actually closer to 30, I think, in some respects. 20 or 30. I've had people <laughs> down here who've been it for the whole way and are, you know, feeling a bit sorry for them. But finally, we're, you know, doing something. Yeah, because it's one of the major missing links on the inner city network in terms of getting across the river and, you know, creating that connectivity for, you know, for walkers and school kids and people going about their business and, of course, riders. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, it's not just for, for cyclists. We've had, you know, the bushwalkers, uh, the, you know, dog walkers can come across as well and school kids from Alphington Grammar and other schools that'll make it much easier and importantly safer for people with, you know, and particularly cyclists instead of having to go along Chandler Highway, Heidelberg Road, it makes it a lot easier to get onto the off-road the off-road network. Yeah, because there's been a, a relatively large community alliance uh, pushing for this for a long time. Yarrabug's been part of that. There's been like, uh, was it Burundara Bushwalkers, Burundara um, yeah. Bicycle Users Group, uh, Friends of Derebin Creek, um, quite a few groups that have been involved with this. But uh, last week, I think, was that the final um, obstacle kind of fell at uh, Burundara Council. That was to do with land use, wasn't it, or permission? Yes, it was to do with the, the ownership because Burundara Council owns the land across the river in Willsmere Park. So it was to grant permission for the, the bridge to go ahead and give access to, for Vic Roads to access the land to build it. Um, I understand as well that the, the other obstacle, which was the Latrobe Golf Course, that was also resolved. Um, so they, they were kind of the two, two last things that were, that were remaining. So now they've been cleared away, the Minister's announced that it's, it'll be going ahead and finished by late next year. Because they've been building towards it. That's the, that's the really b- bizarre thing from our perspective. <laughs> they've been building towards it and we've been watching this for, what, 18 months? Yes, yeah. So they've built the first three bridges across uh, Darabin Creek and they've we were, we we're down here today um, and it's it, it's just the three first three bridges from the north, from Sparks Reserve, but that's still closed off until they've finished the, the, the other bridge across Darabin Creek and uh, the last one across the Yarra River. And so once they're done, it'll be, be able to be open and go through the whole, the whole way. Excellent. Because there was a great picture, I think it was of Derebin Creek, um, kind of works ages ago, where it stopped at a tree. 
Yes, yes, yeah. That, that, it's quite surreal. It, it's it's still um, it's still fenced off, but yeah, I'm not sure if it still stops at the tree. But um, there's still you know they've built the first three bridges, so that's progress. Yeah, can we um, ask about the tree's uh, well-being? Did it go around the tree? Did the tree unfortunately go? Um, you know, we do care about trees here. Yes, yeah, so, yeah no, absolutely. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure what happened to it, but that was one of the outstanding issues about the trees because there were some very old uh, river yes, gums that yes. were around. Um, and they were they were quite significant trees, um, so it was about you know working out you know resolving those issues without hopefully cutting the trees down. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, not quite sure what happened there or what's going to happen. Um, but Vic Roads will, uh, have got the plans for that. I bet um, I bet uh, uh, the roads was it the transport minister or was it roads minister? Yeah, it was on... the roads minister. Yeah. yeah, I bet he kind of liked to uh, preferred being at this announcement this morning than being up the road at Challenger Highway. Yeah, probably. <laughs> well, he came down. It was fantastic. There were about 20 or 30 um, other people here who were all bike riders and oh, you know, cheering him on, which was fantastic to see I on think a Monday he'd, morning. He'd appreciate that at the moment after um, the, the stuff that's going on with Vic Roads and Challenger yeah. Highway. He would like, he would like a, um, a nice audience. But yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so how did you find it this morning? You know, was it kind of like a feeling of relief? Yeah, absolutely, and he he said it as well. He said it was um, it was great to. I mean, he had obviously been part of it for the whole time, but some of the people who did come down here from Darabagbung, from Yarrabug, yep. um, from all the councils, they'd been part of it for a long time as well, and it was yeah, it was a sense of relief, sense that you know something was finally starting to happen. We're finally starting to build something tangible, and you know it's actually going ahead after all this time. Yeah, because it's one of those really interesting things about links. You get these things that happen in new suburbs. You, you don't see it as much in the new suburbs, but you see it at outer suburbs or places where they really have put the planning process together where it's 15 minutes if you go on a fortuitous route around or it can be two minutes that way. Mm-hmm. And um, from an urban planning perspective, these things are fantastic to actually get them get them completed and all the, all the benefits that flow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with, with this, it connects well to the main Yarra Trail. It connects to the Anniversary Trail. And when it's built, you'll be able to basically cycle all the way from Ashburton up to Bundura completely, completely off-road. So it opens up so many new opportunities for people and hopefully increase uh, the levels of cycling and encourage more people to get out of their cars and on their bikes. Yeah, well, it's all those great things of, like, you know, connectivity, kind of seeing your neighbours or friends across the river, school kids, um, active transport. It, it ticks mm. all the boxes. Absolutely, yeah. It's, like you said, connectivity, you know, it makes people want to... You know, instead of needing to go in their car and go all the way around or their bike and go all the way around, it just makes it so much easier for people and that encourages active transport. Yeah. So um, thank you today, Phil, for um, uh, getting in touch with us at short notice. I hope, I hope there was a reasonable crowd down there because we sent, a, sent around a bit of contact uh, information to people last night. Yep. Yeah, yeah, there was a good, good, good group of people here, so that was, that was great to see. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today, Philip. That's all right. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, this panel is now on air. In July 1976, from an old warehouse in High Street, Armadale, 3CR Community Radio hit the airwaves, heralding 40 years of independent, community-owned and controlled radio. This will be the first station owned and operated by a cooperative of community organisations on a Melbourne-wide basis. This is 3CR. As the status quo of old media is challenged, as publications come and go, in a country with the highest concentration of media ownership in the world, 3CR continues to broadcast radical, insightful radio, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're not talking about land rights, we're talking about sovereignty. That's why it's important for us to be at the 10 Embassy. 
From the protests against the Franklin River Dam to the 1998 waterfront dispute, from the east-west tunnel picket to the Aboriginal 10 Embassy, the history of 3CR is dynamic and passionate and ongoing. I was born here. I will die here. I am not moving. So as we celebrate 40 years in 2016, we ask you, our volunteers, listeners and supporters, to join in in saying... Happy birthday, 3CR! Today on Yarra Basque Music Group Radio, I'm talking to John Inghart. If I pronounce your name correctly? Uh, Inglart. Inglart. Oh, I my apologise. And you're talking about? Uh, I'm talking about my trip to Europe last year to attend the uh, Paris Climate Conference. But because it's such a long way to go... I actually incorporated a, a bit of a holiday, a three-month trip, and I took my teenage daughter along as well. So we actually um, spent some time in England, um, and particularly in Devon, where I have a friend, and got a chance to visit Dartmoor. And we also incorporated a 18-day uh, bus trip round Europe to see the main sites uh, of Europe and... Then we had several weeks in France, of which two weeks of that I was actually an accredited delegate to the climate conference in Paris. Excellent. So uh, you were at the COP21, so you would have seen oh, the amazing amount of um, protests and stuff that was going on. Uh, I did. I actually uh, visited uh, the Place de la République on November 29th, November 30th, I think it was, on the sat- Saturday in Paris. So the, it was filled with shoes, including <laughs> pairs of shoes donated by the Pope and the Secretary General of the UN. But of course, uh, it was amazing being part of that protest. And then there was another protest on Saturday, December 12th, which had, uh, well, Ten to 20,000 people in Paris uh, that uh, met near the Arc de Triomphe and then marched through the streets of Paris to the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, so what were your observations on that? Because there were some very mixed feelings about what actually went on there with the actual um, rally at the end of COP21. Um, well, the, that protest was actually um, quite positive, mm. quite important, because it gave, uh, okay, the civil society groups knew that they were doing things. They weren't just waiting for the conference delegates to conclude the agreement. Like, right up until the last moment, we didn't know if there would be an agreement coming out of Paris. It seemed likely, but anything can happen at these conferences. So it was a way for civil society to take the lead and say, we're not waiting for you, for you diplomats and leaders. We're going to continue protesting out in the streets um, and with the divestment movement moving money out of fossil fuels and to renewables. And we're going to actually make your fossil fuel assets an investment risk by our protest. Yeah, because that was an interesting point to bring in. Uh, there was a um, huge protest happening over the weekend that involved cyclists and a blockade. Um, can you give us a little bit more about that in um, in France? Yes, one of the big issues in France is the 
the government, uh, both the regional government and the French state, want to build a new airport 30 kilometres north of the regional city of Nantes, which is uh, near the Atlantic coast. But um, Nantes is already serviced by a, an international airport, um, and it's, uh, the runway isn't nearly at capacity, so there is really no justification for building a new airport. And when you consider all the concrete that, that's involved in building an airport, that it actually would destroy wetland areas, uh, and also the increased aviation emissions, which is a really a, a big issue, which wasn't addressed by the Paris Climate Agreement. So on Saturday, there was uh, over 60,000 people turned out to um, blockade one of the main four-lane roads between Nantes and Van. OK, so what's the point in building something if it's um, not required? Is it just like a um, bit of a... Similar to some of the things we're heading here in Australia with mega projects, there's vested interest, and that's why they want to build it. Precisely. Okay, because I was about to say the Magic East West Link and West Connects, and what's exactly. the other one? Perth. So you've got yeah. business interests who are strongly pushing this, especially the right wing, the people in the Republican Party and the National Front want this airport to occur, and um, a lot of the. Um, community don't want it to happen. So, you know, cyclists were um, an important part of this blockade. There was a, uh, over 2,000 cyclists participated. Um, so they did a bit of a ride, about uh, 30 kilometres, I think, on Saturday um, and visited uh, some of the areas around where the airport would be built and then participated in the road blockade. So what do you... OK, it's from our perspective... Um... Why do you think they're so brazen about trying to do these projects when there's so much public uh, opposition to them and people can see straight through it? Well, this is a project that's been in the pipeline for 50 years now. But the problem is, you know, it's become outdated because of the whole issue of climate change, aviation emissions. I mean, France has actually developed their high-speed train system which is excellent. You know, I used it while I was there. Um, and they really need to reduce the amount of uh, flight emissions. So building a new airport isn't really a solution. So it's more or less uh, the, you know, whatever business interests want this thing built because it's a bit of a cash cow and it can fleece people even more even though it's not required. Exactly. Yes, because as I was looking at some of the stuff overnight, was um, like there's climate emergency, people protesting against because it runs contrary to what uh, COP21 or the people's protests wanted. And they're still brazenly going against it. They are. Well, although um, a couple of weeks ago, the French president, Francois uh, Hollande, agreed that there would be a referendum uh, perhaps in October... It would be a regional referendum, but he hasn't actually specified exactly who, what region would get to vote, whether it would be um, uh, there are a couple of uh, regional departments or it could be the whole of Brittany may get to decide this airport. But really, it's like um, marriage equality it shouldn't be put to a popular vote because the imperative is uh, from climate change that the airport shouldn't proceed. 
Yeah, so, but, well, it's just it does my head in why they think they can do this. That's right. You know, it's ridiculous. But, you know, at least the referendum is uh, a little bit of a progress. So now, you know, part of the, the Saturday's protest was a large show of force by the community um, to say that we don't want to have this airport and we're going to um, mobilise to get the no vote out if this referendum actually takes place. Yes, yeah, so um, what do you see going forward there? There'll be the referendum and that would um, put the kibosh on this or not? Well, Holland has said that um, if the referendum votes no, yes, it would put the kibosh on, on this airport proposal. Mm. They would have to work with that. Yeah, because that's the thing we're working here in Australia where we've got, you know, these three mega projects. You know, the one I was saying earlier was Perth Freight Link, which mm -hmm. is another unnecessary thing that uh, people over there rethink the link are protesting against. Um, and the, the push here is, it, you know, it's a federal election issue looming and also trying to get the things ordered because we had East West Link here had two audits on it and people may be asking, oh, well, has this got to do with cycling issues? Well, actually quite a bit because... Uh, it's the, uh, the keep pushing uh, one form of transport over public transport in mixed mode. And also, I was speaking earlier on the show about what's happening in Sydney, which kind of, you know, trying to criminalise and make an outgroup of um, cycling for transport. This stuff is intertwined. Yes, it certainly is. One of my reasons, um, I actually visited uh, the area when I was there in early November. So they were actually having a heat wave and autumn heat wave at the time, so it was wonderful for me travelling um, around Brittany at that stage. Um, but yeah, the locals thought it was a little bit too warm. Um, but uh, So I spent a week in Nantes and actually went to a couple of um, local climate forums while I was there, and I did a little bit of cycling a couple of hundred kilometres uh, further west at a town called Erdogan. Ah, so and it was really wonderful cycling. Like, it, I wasn't going um, long distances. I was just doing short, short, small tours through back lanes, and the the um, they have uh, shared paths and on-road paths. So it was really excellent. The bicycle infrastructure um, around near Erdogan. So compared to here, it's um, quite sedate, uh, would you say? I mean, you know, England's quite a built up compared to parts of Australia, as you, as you would well know, but they, they do kind of compact planning quite well. Yes, they do. And, um, yeah, I was actually quite impressed with um, the level of uh, cycling infrastructure that I saw in country areas as well in, as, well as in Nantes. Nantes has actually developed about 485 kilometres of bicycle paths and on-road lanes over the last uh, 15 years or so. So they've put a lot of effort into integrating cycling along with public transport and urban planning. And in fact, I think last year the Velo City Conference was held in Nantes. They were the 2013 uh, European Green City of the Year. So it was actually a, a really nice city to visit and get around on either by public transport or by cycling. Yeah, so you were saying earlier that you went to Dartmoor and you also went to Brittany and, you know, what's your overall take-out from, like, riding or being in those areas? See, they're kind of the Australian neuroticism about, you know, driving or riding on roads seems to be absent or something else entirely? 
Well, I think in um, England and Europe, there is more respect for cyclists um, there, and you find that road speeds are, uh, tend to be a little bit less. Uh, so it is um, easier cycling. I didn't do all that much cycling, but what I did, um, I found it was easier. In fact, when I was in Erdogan, I wasn't... Uh, I was staying at a holiday house and using their their bikes they had there. So I was cycling around without a cycling helmet and I felt quite safe you to do scofflaw. that on the back roads and on the bike paths there. Scofflaw. Um, Duncan, Duncan Gay would have you banged to rights for doing that here in Australia. I beg your pardon? Duncan Gay would have you kind of banged to rights or, you know, kind of calling the Riot Act on you if you did that here. Yes, I know. But... I can remember back in the 1970s I was riding without a helmet. Most of us were. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, generally, you know, if you rode reasonably, you were doing it quite safe. Um, you know, it's only if um, you tended to commute and mix with the vehicle traffic and rode at speed that it becomes more of an issue, I think, a safety issue. Well, that's why many people have come around to the way of thinking that um, we must have separate facilities and or like a complete change in the way that we do our planning. I mean, there's no point trying to retrofit kind of cycling or walking and the rest of it into a badly planned city. We've just got to have a really different way of going about how we utilise our shared spaces. Of course. And that's... uh, Urban planning is really essential. Um, So incorporating... um, cycling as part of urban planning. Like, I've seen them, seen the retrofits in Paris, and they've turned streets and added a separated bicycle lane, which sort of, like, works. (laughs) But, um, yeah. So Um, what? We need to move more to that uh, model, I think, here in Australia. We need to also change the planning regulations so that high-density units can be built without car parking for god's ah, sake this would be you'd be talking about nightingale I in am. brunswick yes you'd have a bit to say about that yeah mm. well i after living in paris for a month i think we have to start moving towards a high density model where we incorporate good cycling facilities good public transport facilities and units that don't need to have car parking incorporated you know, so people can get around, do their, go do their shopping, get to work, you know, do recreation, and they don't need a car. Well, the thing is about cars, I mean, okay, they're, you know, wonderful devices and they've had ultimate, you know, amount of uses and stuff for, for people. But the, pe- the, pe- the thing being is the amount of space and the amount of resources they take up. Now, the thing that um, really gets me is about the amount of free storage space a car takes up, and that is now inbuilt to our culture of, like, we expect that. We're allowed to park our cars wherever we want. We're, um, roads and shared spaces are off-limits, and if you do anything other than drive a car, it is seen as something stupid and dangerous. But we accept that. Mm, exactly. So overseas they have, you know, I'm not saying it's the, you know, utopia compared to here, but there's less neurotic than Australia? Much less neurotic. In fact, I was really impressed. Uh, I only spent um, half a day in Amsterdam. No, a day and a night in Amsterdam, but I really loved the the cycling culture there. 
and uh, yeah, you could see people, you know, families going for cycling on, you know, separated bike bike lanes. You know, it was raining for some of the time, so people cycled with umbrellas up, and it was great. Yeah. So, any other observations to take out from being in Paris and England, or? One of the observations was there's a whole lot of uh, bike sharing programs over there. But, of course, in Europe, um, I couldn't actually work out the instructions, so I didn't get to uh, <laughs> utilise them. Yeah. I'm sure if I was there for a longer period, I prob- probably would. Yeah, because Paris, the Veleb, I think, has uh, one of the highest participation rates in the world, I believe. That's right. So I did hire bikes for a day in Nantes, um, not from the Biclue, uh a shared bike program, but the Nantes Metropole uh, have uh, a scheme where at their parking stations they have uh, bike parking and you can also hire bicycles. So I fronted up and I paid the 20 euros per day, I think, and left a bond and I was able to hire a bike for a day. Actually, it was myself and a friend, so we hired two bikes. That was pretty straightforward. And you didn't have to go through the whole um, of a helmet and all the other regulation rigmarole. It was just a straightforward process. Straightforward process. And, you know, I didn't have to try and work out, you know, if I need the credit credit card and you know, work out how to register for one of these um, uh, bike-sharing programs. So I just talked with the person, they took my bond, and I had a bike for the day. Excellent. So they need to be a little bit more thought, I think, put into bike-sharing programs in having a multilingual access, I think. I think that's what uh, was one of the impediments to me uh, actually trying to join one of those programs while travelling in Europe. Yeah, I only wish I had spent more time in uh, Europe and cycled along the Loire River Valley. I've got 800 kilometre uh, trail uh, from near Paris to the Atlantic. Oh, that sounds like a next trip, doesn't it, John? It does. Okay. Thank you so much for your time today and your observations from COP21 and also the, was it the NC, or oh, the protests? NDDL protest uh, near Nantes. Okay. Thank you so much for today, John. Thank you very much, Chris. And that's all I've got time for today on Yarra Bicycle User Group Radio. Apologies if you're listening to me live earlier and uh, heard all the technical stuffing about. But thank you to John and Philip for being good sports and uh, being able to record the interviews and put them on the 3CR podcast. So next week should I have Faith and Val in the studio. And um, don't forget, 3CR, we're all volunteers, us the presenters, and every subscription and donation to 3CR, especially in the 40th year, keeps this station on air. So that's all I've got time for, and up next should be Dirt Radio. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.